is a blue. You're listening to Three Valleys Radio. Welcome to our In Conversation program. In this town, you're out of luck. Every week we talk to a sporting personality to find out just what makes them tick. And you're not moving anywhere. From their early childhood, to their professional career, to their musical tastes. Take you out of this place, someone you can We cover it all. So sit back and enjoy as we talk to this week's special guest. Here on Three Valleys Radio. Well, good evening and welcome to In Conversation. And tonight's guest is Simon Holt. Now, Simon is one of the top two or three, I'd guess. There can't be many more uh, race commentators in the country. And uh, he's agreed to join us and come on and have a chat. Good morning, Simon. Morning, AD. How are you? I'm in good form, thank you. Yes, uh, looking forward to... uh, Particularly the arc in the next uh, few weeks, and we're going to have a cracking Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe. Yes, and um, that that is the race I'm most looking forward to at the moment. It's building up to be a bit of a classic, isn't it? Yes, I mean it was a surprise to see snowfall beaten in the pre-May, and that's uh, possibly opened it up a little bit more. But um, maybe the St. Ledger when a Hurricane Lane will run. Uh, we've got a day R. And also, of course, Tanawa, who has done no favours at all by St. Mark's Basilica in the Irish Champion Stakes. And uh, I think she's going to be a threat to all of them yeah. over at Longchamp. What do you think was the problem there, the going? I thought, and being frank about this, because I generally am a big fan of Ryan Moore. I think he's a, you know, an excellent rider. His yeah. record says as much. But it was one of the most indisciplined rides I think I've ever seen him give a horse because in the straight, he allowed St. Mark's Basilica to go way offline, edge way offline, and Tanawa was carried along all the way up the home straight, being forced to go right. I don't think you could be dogmatic that Tanawa would have beaten St. Mark's Basilica, but uh, I thought it was extraordinary that Ryan only got a one-day suspension in Ireland, whereas in other countries like France, like Hong Kong or Australia, they've thrown the book at him for not keeping the horse straight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, look, Simon, let, let's let's go back to, to, to square one, shall we? Um, you left, you know, well, you were born in 1964, and... Um, Obviously, at the end of your scholastic career, uh, you came out into the big wide world of jobs. Um, what was on your mind at that point of time? I mean, did you have any ideas as to what you were going to do? Well, it's extraordinary, AD, really, because I was obsessed with horse racing from quite a young age, and there was no real reason for it. Um, neither of my parents were into racing they were keen on sport but um i don't know really where it came from and i used to sit and watch the television the televised racing from a very young age and uh, all through school uh, i did okay at o levels not so good at a levels and one of the reasons i didn't do so well at a levels was that i was going into a local publishing company at weekends and by sheer chance uh, it was a company called Furlong Press, and by sheer chance, they produced a weekly form book, which is called Superform. All right. And basically, at the end of my sixth form, and I did very badly at the A levels, just lost interest completely. Yeah. And uh, they they had a job waiting for me, and uh, it was a fantastic grounding there. I learned um, how to write about horses, how to handicap horses, how to in- interpret times. And it was just the dream job, really, for, for an 18-year-old. It was uh, one of several sort of right place, right time moments yeah. in the early part of my career. So I do look back on 
my career with um, a feeling that I've been very fortunate and obviously I've had to take the opportunities but um, that was a real stroke of luck. My hometown, Shoreham by Sea, and there was a publisher of horse racing material in the town. Yeah, absolutely. What luck. Yeah, too. I wish something like that had happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's extraordinary good fortune, I think. So, all right then, well, how does the handicap system work without uh, giving us too long a piece on it? Well, at Superform, they ran their own um, private handicap ratings, uh, but they were pretty much aligned with the official handicap system. And I suppose the best way to explain it uh, is that on the flat, the ratings go up to the notional top weight of 10 stones. So you've got a a highest flat rating of about 140, and then uh, over jumps up to around 170, 175, the sort of mark that Corto Star was rated, up to the notional top weight over jumps of 12 stone 7. And trying to explain handicapping in, in one minute is not easy, <laughs> but basically, obviously, the, the handicappers look at the result. They see how far horse A has beaten horse B, how much weight it has conceded or received, and then um, rate them according to that. And on the flat... Uh, a length over five furlongs is worth three pounds over jumps two mile hurdles mostly a pound a length so it varies over different distances and you've also got to take into account on the flat and sometimes over jumps allowances like weight for age allowances and female allowances uh, for lead allowances on the flat mares allowances over jumps so it's a complicated business handicapping but once you grasp it and i think it's one of racing's problems really is in 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 its endeavor to become more popular is that if if wannabe racing fans can't get beyond the first base i.e knowing which race separates another race why one race is different from another i should mm, say yeah and then you can go on and if you learn about handicapping and learn about form study then it becomes seriously interesting mm. in my view and that's really uh, been because i had that grounding when i was 18 um it has sustained me through my life not um, not really just because i've made a career out of it but also because i've been genuinely fascinated by the sport all these years yeah quite well just one final question on that particular issue so uh, when they when they're doing the hand when they're working out the handicap is it just on the winner and the second or do they go right down through the field no well they'll apply what they call performance ratings to each horse uh, depending on how it's performed in that race and then assess it with regard to its current rating so for example a horse that um, wins maybe by three lengths an impressive winner say Mm. um, over a mile on the flat um, beating the second horse three lengths and maybe if they were clear of the third then the handicapper might put not just the winner up but the second up as well the winner winning by three lengths over a mile could probably expect to go up seven or eight pounds and maybe the second might go up by a pound or two but uh, that's and then horses that are out of form they will slowly or they should come down in the ratings to give them more of a chance. The handicapper's job, the ideal is that the horses cross the line together. Obviously, in practice, that's almost impossible. But when when you sometimes see a bunch finish in a handicap, you might hear a commentator say, oh, that was a great result for the handicapper. That's what they're trying to achieve, Hmm. to make it as fair as possible. If you didn't have handicaps, the best horse would always win. And yeah. that horse would always be long odds on favourite. Yeah. So you need to have faith. You need to have handicaps to um, service the betting industry and make it interesting for people to have a bet. Well, there you go, listeners. Now you know, don't you? Dead easy, really, isn't it? Absolutely. I picked it up <laughs> straight away. <laughs> that was quite difficult to explain, to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Time for Simon's first musical choice, and it's Dolly Parton and the Bargain Store. what you're looking for If you don't mind the fact that all the merchandise is used But with a little mending it could be as good as new Why you take for instance this old broken heart 
If you will just replace the missing parts You would be surprised to find how good it really is Take it and you never will be sorry that you did The bargain store is open, come inside So having got over the intricacies of the handicapping system, um, you're at this newspaper and uh, you're obviously picking up a lot. But I mean, you, you were there, what, in the, in the guise of a journalist, basically, were you? Well, I did lots of jobs at Furlong Press and um, it, it was a subscription um, form book, but they also published an annual every year. It was called the Hague Races and Racehorses Annual. Some of your viewers may well have an ancient copy somewhere yeah. um, at the back of a cupboard. And uh, and um, I did a lot of menial stuff, being the junior, you know. Mm. In those days, we were um, sticking bits of paper on other bits of paper and making making cups of tea and all that sort of thing. But yeah. uh, And it was really very much in the infancy of computerization, and we had a lot of difficulties indexing um, the horses every week, and the computer system sometimes broke down. And it was for that reason, I suppose, I was a little bit impetuous, and, and um, I fell out with the, um, the boss after a couple of years, and um, then set up my own small company writing form guards, form guides in race cards, but uh, that wasn't really enough, and, and, and then worked in a pub for uh, over a year, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Oh, I'm so, not surprised. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, so no, it was, well, it, it had very nice customers. It, it was a pub in two parts, uh, like many pubs. Are. It had a, a lounge bar and a, a public bar upstairs. Yeah. And, and um, the, the guys in the public bar were extraordinary because when it came to, to um, last orders and we'd ring the bell, they'd order two pints of beer each and <laughs> yeah. literally just open their throats yeah and tip tip the beer down they were they were proper professional drinkers but but they're all nice with it it was a nice atmosphere and um, i uh, carried on there because i needed the money and um then the next stroke of luck really was when the racing post was launched because that uh, doubled the number of jobs in racing journalism yeah yeah and i applied for both the racing post and the sporting life got interviews for both of them and with the experience at Furlong Press I was offered a job by both but the Sporting Life offered first and I couldn't afford to say no I had to take the first one yeah. so I joined the Sporting Life. But it's interesting you mentioned about computers because I can remember you know I was involved in publishing long before I, I went to work for Yeovil Town and um, we used to publish a couple of free newspapers and and in the early days of when uh, you know um, um, graphic design and and computers were were sort of getting into bed together. Um, I can remember there was a program called Aldous P- 
PageMaker, he called it, which eventually it became Adobe. Um, and I can remember, you know, the, the trials and tribulations we had trying to get the hang of this because obviously it was a lot easier than, than the days of you know scalpels and cutting pieces of paper and sticking them down and, and having grids and stuff. So it was much easier than that. So I can quite uh, concur with your having problems with it, really, because it wasn't that easy to pick up, that's for sure. No, it wasn't. And funnily enough, um, in a way, uh, Furlong Press were ahead of the Sporting Life because when I joined the Sporting Life, they were still on typewriters. Really? Um, yeah. We were, we were still on typewriters. Um, obviously, the computerization came in fairly quickly, but not without teething problems. And um, the other thing, I mean, it was just a different time, a different era, because in the Sporting Life office, you know, many, there was lots of the guys... And, and there were one or two female journalists as well were smoking. Yeah, it was a smoke-filled, <laughs> a smoke-filled <laughs> office, yeah. and um, and it was quite acceptable to go off for a couple of hours in the middle of the day for a liquid lunch. Yeah, and then totter back and write your copy. So it was, <laughs> it was, it was just a completely different time. Really, I can't imagine that being well. It wouldn't be allowed now. Certainly not the smoking in the office. Yeah. And, uh, and the unions had been very powerful before I arrived and got my job in uh, newspaper journalism. And uh, when I, I arrived, I was given a job on the weekly paper, the Sporting Life Weekender. And um, I was contracted to do just three days a week um, with one interview to be done every month. That was with a trainer for a stable feature. And that, yeah. that, was the, that was the requirement. And we got eight weeks holiday a year. It was just unbelievable. But that was as a result of the power of the unions at that time. Yeah, quite, absolutely. More music now from, this time, Mr Frank Sinatra. And it was a very good year. It was a very good year It was a very good year For small town girls And soft summer nights We'd hide from the light On the village green When I was seventeen When I was twenty-one It was a very good year It was a very good year For city girls Who lived up the stair With all that perfumed hair And it came undone when I was 21 When I was 35 it was a very good year It was a very good year For blue-blooded girls of independent means We'd ride in limousines Their chauffeurs would drive when I was 35 
But now the days are short I'm in the autumn of the year And now I think of my life As vintage wine from fine old kegs From the brim to the dregs It poured sweet and clear It was a very good year Frank Sinatra there, and it was a very good year. So so there you are, you're working for the sporting life, which is, you know, let's face it, certainly at that time anyway, almost a national institution when it came to horse racing. Um, you know, where did you go from there then? How did you, how did you make the, the jump, if you like, from, from sporting life to becoming one of the top um, commentators in the, in the field? Well, for a while, I, I did both, and right up until the, the sporting life closed um, mm. at, at, at the end of the 90s. And uh, gradually, I became uh, an outside reporter for the sporting life and um, would go to the races and uh, write the reports and sometimes the close-up comments, the comments on how each horse had ran, run. Yeah. And at the same time, again, another right place right time moment in 1987 uh, SIS launched pictures into betting shops for the first time hitherto and you'll probably remember this the commentary you got in mm. betting shops was an audio commentary that's right yeah. XTEL company yeah and uh, so suddenly there were pictures in betting shops and the company SIS who were making this happen wanted to improve the quality of commentators mm. uh, at that point it was a bit sort of military perhaps a little bit slow and they wanted it to be a little bit more um bit more modern and a bit more energetic and um i'd done a point to point and i sort of harbored um hopes that i might be able to get into it um i was always a great admirer of Petro sullivan he was a big influence on me and and i also went to australia a couple of times at, uh, around that time and heard some of the australian callers um, people like Johnny Tapp, who was absolutely marvellous, and Greg Miles a bit later on, and uh, and they were great influences as well. So, again, I was encouraged to put in the demo tape, and um, I got in. I was taken on and uh, started out as a racecourse commentator in 1988 and uh, was juggling the two jobs for, well, probably a good 10 years where I was reporting at a racecourse, but also was commentating. And they made for some very... Um, busy days, uh, quite a lot of stress as well. Um, And again, sign of the times, um, one always had to make a check call on the way home from the races once you'd um, sent your copy over. Mm. And that was either by a very rudimentary computer or just down the phone line to a copy taker. And you had to make this check call. And one of my biggest challenges leaving the race course on the way home was to try and find a telephone box <laughs> yeah. yeah no mobile <laughs> phones then that now, can you? <laughs> but that's absolutely true yeah and um, there were a couple of occasions because i had uh, such a busy day commentating and writing the report and getting quotes etc where i was literally forgotten by the race course and uh, one day at bangor i was crawling along a wall trying to find the way out in the dark and another day at Worcester, I had to jump over two sharp fences to get back to the car park because it all could be completely forgotten. Yeah. So I was, um, I, whereas I'm fairly quick away from the races now after the last race, in those days I was not. I was usually uh, absolutely the last person to leave. So the, inf- uh, the introduction of mobile phones must have been a godsend to you then. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, compared to um, searching for telephone boxes, much, much more preferable, I would yeah. say. Did you um, did you have one of the old bricks that uh, you know they first started? 
Yes, I think I think my mobile phones, like most people, for most people, have got smaller and smaller yeah, <laughs> as yeah, the years yeah, have yeah. passed. Although I do notice some of them nowadays because they take such wonderful pictures that they have got bigger, haven't they? But I, yeah, I actually yeah. have uh, one of the early. I still have one of the early iPhones. It's still going strong, thank goodness. Yeah. And that is, uh, and that is quite small. But you know, of course, that was a, a revelation, as was the the computerization and uh, you know the the sort of um, data that the Racing Post has and the yeah. form uh, is, is second to none. It's superb. You know, it was quite a battle between the Sporting Life and the Racing Post for circulation, obviously, for some time. And um, being biased, I felt that the Sporting Life was the superior paper for a very long time. Mm. But um, in the end, I think the Post had a bit more financial muscle. Uh, the Sporting Life uh, went into a very costly court case, you might remember, over the running of a horse called Top Seas uh, in a race, I think, at Newmarket it was. It was a case anyway that the Sporting Life lost, and uh, that was very costly. Um, mm. So eventually, after well, a long history, the Sporting Life closed, and uh, uh, at that point, I basically became... Uh, I was a columnist still, and um, but more so, the the balance switched towards the uh, the commentator. More music now. This is an unusual one for Simon to choose. It's Ollie Murs and Troublemaker. You're a troublemaker. You're a troublemaker. Mm. You ain't nothing but a troublemaker, girl. You had me hooked again from the minute you sat down. The way you got your lip got my head spinning around. After a drink or two, I was putty in your hands. I don't know if I had the chance to stand. Oh, trouble, trouble, make it, yeah, that's your middle name. Oh, I know you're no good, but you're stuck in my brain. And I wanna know. Troublemaker. So tell me, you know, I mean, I, I, I watch racing regularly. Um, like you, I'm an enthusiast. Um, 
I sit and watch racing and obviously I rely when I'm watching it I rely on on looking for hot to trots colors or shake hand dance colors or somebody's colors and you get uh, when you watch racing regularly you get to know them and you get to recognize them so I suppose that from that perspective it you know it's the same for you but I mean the, you know when you've got a sort of a 20 25 runner field it must be extremely hard and and I listen to you and other people and I just don't know how you do it what's the secret Oh, well, I'd have to kill you if I told you that. Really. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, I can't. Um, no, it's it's just, I think I've found over the years, and there's been quite a few youngsters who got in touch with me and, and the other commentators like Richard Hoyles and Ian Bartlett, etc., who've come along and um, sent sent in demo tapes and things. And, and you can almost tell immediately whether they can do it or not. And I think yeah. it's just such a, a specialised skill and... I was just extremely lucky to find that I could do it. Mm. And it, it has actually been the mainstay of my income for yeah. many years now because journalism has really, with all the opportunities in racing journalism, journalism has just um, become more and more reduced and less well paid. Whereas the commentaries, there's always been this demand for commentaries, obviously, to describe races. I mean, some races which you think would be very difficult um, are not so bad for a commentator if the horses are well known and what I would say is that over the years the field sizes have gradually come down because the safety maximums have been reduced but on the other hand when I started out there were was quite poor camera coverage of races so if you didn't know what was going on down at the seven furlong start at red car, nobody watching would have had a clue either. Mm. But now that the pictures are so much greater, the scrutiny is greater. Yeah. So while the job has become slightly easier, the scrutiny is much greater and the, the emphasis is very much on accuracy. And I've always said that, you know, the, the accuracy is the most important part of the job. And then comes a little bit of journalism on the big day. What does the story mean in this race? What does this horse's victory mean? And also an element of performance playing to the crowd a little bit, perhaps, because it's an exciting race. So, um, you know, those those things come into it. Um, and I've been very lucky to do a, a lot of the big races. In fact, probably all of them now, um, many times over and it's my main challenge not just calling the race accurately but because i know that those races are going to replay be replayed quite a bit is trying to find the right words yeah to just the last phrase or something words that are not too contrived but um describe the moment and describe the meaning of that moment so is is jump racing easier i presume because once they've sort of I don't know, done the first first fence, they're already beginning to split up a bit, aren't they? So it must make it easier than flat racing. Well, uh, it depends really on on the meeting. I mean, the Cheltenham Festival would be as challenging as any any meeting all year because of the size of the fields at, at Cheltenham, which are much bigger than virtually every other any other jump meeting yeah. in the um, in the jump season so there's some extremely challenging races in that like the county handicap hurdle for example um, the novice races can be very big fields as well and then you've got the challenge as I said earlier if calling the champion hurdle the gold cup in particular of, of just trying to find the right words at the end of the race because it's such a momentous race for all fans of the sport and yeah. and it's and the result will go down in history but uh, it took quite a long time to get um, the pace right over jumps i found compared to the flat the flat seems to have a natural rhythm to me it's it's pretty much quick all the way unless it's a small field over a mile and a half for example but on over jumps you know you've got to be wary that the race may take five six seven minutes and that you've got to have something left at the end of it. So yeah. it's no good. Go One of the first big races I did was the Welsh National. And I, I was amazed they gave me the big race to do. I'd only been commentating, I think, for a few months. And uh, to be honest, I made a right mess of it because after one circuit, the my voice was almost at, at its top pitch. 
and um, I still had a circuit to go. And as you know, Chepstow is an extremely large race course. Yeah. And by the time they came round again, and I think it was Bonanza Boy was the winner, uh, I was literally squeaking. You know, I just <laughs> had, had nothing left. <laughs> like a lot of the horses in the race, I didn't get the trip. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I had to learn from things like that. And um, when, when I got the chance to, um, to be um, doing better races regularly, particularly for Channel 4, then, you know, I think I did just learn and you just get better and you learn from experience like anything else. Yeah. But what about a race like that? I mean, the Hunt Cup, for example, I mean, there's usually, what, 30-plus runners in that. I mean, that must be a nightmare over, what, five or six furlongs, is it? I mean, it's over in a flash and you've got so many horses. How do you do that one? Well, the, yes, I mean, the Hunt Cup's a mile, incidentally, but it, it's really... Um, almost impossible to give every horse a mention unless you have absolutely excellent pictures and we have worked out uh, at ascot for example a way of getting around it and that is there's a cameraman in the top of the stand there who will focus on one group because they normally split into two groups go in fairly tight on one group on the far side and then pan across to the group on the stand side and that that enables us to to name as many horses as possible obviously you've still got to spot them in because both groups are fairly large but that that has been an improvement in recent years again when when i started out and when i first did ascot in the sort of mid 90s um you just didn't have that sort of picture coverage and i dare say we just didn't name as many horses in those days whereas yeah, now yeah. i think the standard is very much higher now than it was then uh, not uh, unaided by the fact that uh, the picture quality is so much better now i've been obviously jenning up a little bit on your career and uh, i noticed that you know there was a in the early days you you were uh, like a joint commentator and they had um you know you in one point and somebody else in in the main stand was that basically because the pictures were so poor it wasn't actually it it is the reason um well one of the reasons why in the grand national there are at least three commentators and i think on radio they have four mm. uh because the course is so large yeah uh but the, the times that I've shared the commentary, initially some early Grand Nationals, I think the first one I did might have been Little Polvere, uh, Tony Balding's horse, in the early 90s, something like that. Mm. And they decided that um, it was too much for Graham Good, who was calling the race in the stand to be on his own, and uh, we, it was a different feed. We literally stood next to each other with a bank of um, monitors yeah. and, and just handed over to each other. And because it would be too much for one person to do the whole nine and a half, ten minutes plus of the Grand National. Mm. You wouldn't have a voice left. And then when Channel 4 Racing got the contract for the Cheltenham Festival, my boss, Andrew Franklin, fancied doing something a little bit different. And again, he thought that it might sound good if um, there were two commentators in each race and so I again I sat, stood next to Graham Good who was the senior commentator then um, I was uh, usually in those early days for Channel 4 at the second meeting but uh, at the festival I was next, stood next to him and I did the middle parts of the race and handed over you know yeah. sometimes I think it's it in, maybe injects a bit more of interest and excitement having a second voice I noticed you know sometimes on the athletics you the coverage um i think it can be enhanced by having more than one voice mm, mm. um so that was the idea and um we did that for a while on channel four and um in 2000 graham good who was a great colleague really lovely guy uh he decided to stand down and i was parachuted into the uh the main position the main commentary position brilliant next up in the musical states we've got descapitita by justin beaver I told you that I never would I told you I'd change Even when I knew I never could Know that I can't find nobody else as good as you I need you to stay Need you to stay I get drunk, wake up, I'm wasted still I realize the time that I wasted I feel like you can't feel the way I feel I'll be fucked up if you can't be right Oh, 
be right yeah. I do the same thing I told you that I never would I told you I changed Even when I knew I never could I know that I can't find nobody else as good as you I need you to stay, need you to stay I do the same thing I told you that I never would I told you I changed Even when I knew I never could I know that I can't find nobody else as good as you I need you to stay, need you to stay When I'm away from you, I miss your touch Capito there and Justin Bieber. So uh, it says here in 2001 you actually did the Pre de Laughter Triumph as well. Was it the only time you did it perhaps? I don't know. That was the first one for Channel 4. The the, the rights for the, the arc um, have been swapped around a good deal over the years and that was the first one I did and it was the last one I did before about... 2013 when channel four got the rights back again and um uh, trev won a couple of times i remember that and the first arc i did was when saki won and uh, he was a very good horse very impressive horse and that was in the second year i think of my new job as the main commentator the first year had been rather typified by or or the highlight was i suppose isterbrack's third win in the champion hurdle and um also i think uh, i'm just trying to remember what the other ones at that time that first year but i always remember isterbrack and maybe in that year or the year after there was a very exciting queen mother champion chase in which edward john blur and desert root fought it out up the hill and i remember my voice cracking and i I rather cringe every time I hear that commentary uh, back. Uh, but those are the memories, and um, it was just marvellous. Uh, I mean, doing the, uh, a race like the Ark, which has always been one of the highlights of the year. I mean, it's just a fantastic horse race. And the Cheltenham Festival, which I was always an absolute, absolutely adored the festival, and um, to be calling some of those great horses, following in the footsteps of horses that had been heroes of mine early on, like, Sea Pigeon and Monksfield yeah. and on the flat, you know, the likes of Grundy and Shirley Heights and etc, etc, you know I mean the horse that really got me interested in racing, I think it hooked me completely was Red Rum, mm. back in 1973 when in that marvellous Grand National still possibly the best race I've ever seen where he wore down the uh, wobbling crisp on the run-in you know, and it was just such a dramatic race and I think that was the one that really hooked me I'm beginning to think you're getting a bit psychic actually Simon because one of the next few questions I've got was to ask you your best horse, best jockey, best trainer, and you just answered one of those. I'm assuming if I asked you who, what was your your, your favourite, the best horse you ever um, commentated on, it would be Red Rum? Well, he was the greatest influence on me, and I just think that his record at, at Aintree over those fences, and they were formidable fences yeah. at his during his career, much more so than now. I went to um, commentate at Beecher's Brook, uh, in April on the National and I was well Beechersbrook is, is nothing it's not the fence it was at all there's no no drop on the landing so I understand the reasons for it uh, times have changed but the course in Red Rum's day was it took a huge amount of jumping and, and his record to win three times and finish second twice and he would have come back for a sixth grand national but for a late injury I think he was just a remarkable horse and uh, his his record, I think, could well stand forever. I know mm. Tiger Roll has come close 
uh, and if he'd been allowed to have another go at it, um, you know, he could have he could have emulated Red Rum's number of victories. But uh, the race has changed, and it doesn't the course doesn't take so much jumping as it used to. And I just think uh, Red Rum's achievements in the whole history of the Grand National, and actually in jumps racing, tower over so many other horses. Uh, albeit admirable achievements as well. So, so yeah, Red Rum was um, certainly the biggest influence, and there's been lots of favourite horses since. Um, Frankel, obviously, on the flat. He was just marvellous, and Corto starred him in that marvellous era, era with Paul Nichols having all those good horses. And um, and also Best Mate. Um, he was probably... Uh, Best Mate's third Gold Cup was probably the most important race I commentated on. Mm. Uh, in my first two or three years with Channel 4. But listen to you there, you, you very much, you mentioned one flat horse, Frankel, but all the rest mm. were jumpers. So one would one <laughs> deduce from that that jumping is more your game than flat racing is. Uh, I would say that um, it uh, is more emotive. I do get, um, I think it's really a, a, just because the jumpers hang around, don't they? You know, yeah. they're, they're back every season and you do get... Uh, very attached to them and it's just so sad when on the flat you like a horse and it disappears see the stars for example a terrific racehorse but retired at the end of his three-year-old campaign what a yeah. shame you know yeah. um, he could have run as a four-year-old giving weight for age to younger horses uh, there were there have been i mean shergar was a very influential horse for me it's the first derby i ever went to in 1981 and uh, just couldn't believe how well he won and uh, and dancing brave was a another amazing horse a yeah. real big favorite and i was very lucky in those days uh, to live down in the south and um, we we followed his career and I, I paid several visits to guy harwood's yard and interviewed him for the sporting life and uh, that was a memorable season when he came back from his derby defeat to win the king george and then that quite amazing performance in the in the Pridlata Triumph where I thought that Pat Edrid probably got himself into trouble but the horse just sprinted down the outside produced a, uh, an extraordinary turn of foot to go and win and it was a very good arc too so dancing great so there are flat horses mm, mm. Um, I was a big fan of Kingman and I think I've already mentioned Frankel which yeah, you know yeah. you couldn't really fail to admire that horse 14 wins from I 14 think, stars it was just brilliant I think when you look at old Derby reruns and stuff which i've had to do sometimes for chaining up on the racing show um shergar's performance uh, i can't remember which one it was the year but i mean it was just phenomenal the way he just pulled away and absolutely pulverized them and you know what a horse that was and and what a tragic end it, it certainly was tragic wasn't it the, mm. the the second part of his racing life but uh, at that time on that day in early June in 1981, he was just so far ahead of his contemporaries. Yeah. And it was extraordinary, wasn't it? And uh, I still remember the, the commentary of Peter Bromley on the radio. How he said, you know, you needed a telescope to see the rest. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was amazing. And uh, it was one of the widest, I think it's still the widest margin winner. He is the widest margin winner of the Derby. And this year we had a very wide margin winner of the Oak Snowfall, who mm. eclipsed, I think, the previous record by Sun Princess. So it doesn't happen very often, but there is a time, I think, or every every now and again in the, in with three-year-olds that you just get one that is well ahead of the others. Yeah. And Shergar was certainly way superior at that stage of his career. Well, let's move on to jockeys, and you must have seen you know thousands of jockeys um all the top ones i'm sure i'm assuming who would you say was the best jockey you've ever seen well the best jump jockey uh, for me well i worked with him for many years and that was john frankham yeah i i've never seen anyone look more comfortable on a horse or over a fence than john and uh he was just beautiful to watch i remember years ago he rode a horse called Uncle Bing, and I think it won the, the Toffin Trophy over the big fences at Aintree, and it was just absolutely unbelievable. You know, horse and rider in perfect harmony. And he was so still over a fence, presented a horse so beautifully to a fence, but he was just a brilliant horseman. I mean, he started off show jumping and uh, became a jockey, but, he, you know, he still uh, really was just a superb horseman, and he's the best I think I've seen over jumps on the flat my favorite growing up was and i think for many was lester mm. um lester piggott I, as time's gone on i've perhaps learned 
a bit more and perhaps he's <laughs> a little bit less admirable than perhaps I felt about him at the time when I was young and influ- influential, influence rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he, he just seemed to be... Um, you know, in a class of his own. There were some great jockeys around when I was following racing early on. I was a big fan of Joe Mercer, who was another great stylist. Willie Carson was a, a brilliant jockey as well, Pat Edry. But uh, I think Leicester stood out. And, of course, come Derby days, talking about the Derby again, everyone wanted to know what Leicester was going to ride. You know, he, yeah. he had this knack of getting on the right horse, and he was quite ruthless about it as well. So he was a extraordinary character, but blessed with, uh, well, unusual natural ability, I, I would say. And uh, he, he was one of those jockeys that hit, uh, it could just make, he could just make the difference. Mm. Not many jockeys I think you can say that about. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've always subscribed to the idea that it's sort of 90% horse, 10% jockey. Some trainers will say, well, the jockey can only... Uh, cock it up but um, some jockeys can make the difference you know Mm. through their tactical uh, shrewdness um, and their power in the saddle of course Leicester would struggle these days because he was very dependent on the whip at times and there were one or two finishes that he rode notably on the minstrel in the derby that um, would not pass the censor these days and uh, would end up with him getting a a very long suspension and now the last of Simon's musical choices and it's Simon and Garfunkel and the only living boy in New York.
I'll tell you a story about Leicester. I, I, we had a couple of stud farms around here where I live, and uh, one of them, they had a horse that was, if you like, you could loosely describe it as the runt of the litter, if you know what I mean. And um, anyway, the guy that uh, ran the stud, I knew him pretty very well, and he said, you know, do you want to, we'll form a little little club, if you like, four or five of us, and we can, we'll go. Because it was, it was only because, I think, cosmetically, the horse had a couple of scars or something. It was, it was a long time ago now. But anyway, so we, we, we did it. The horse was called Mandeville George. Mick Shannon trained it. And um, anyway, first race he was due to go, he went to Windsor. And we all went up full of expectation, as you do. And uh, the jockey was Lester Piggott, no less. Anyway, so we stood there looking down the track, waiting to see the horse. And, of course, they broke from the stalls and we couldn't see our colours anywhere. And eventually we could we, we picked him up and he was way out the back door. So when, when Lester came in um, to, to meet Dick, the, the, the owner of the studlight, he just said in typical Lester Piggott's arm, he wouldn't run, Dick. He just wouldn't run. And that was, and they just walked away. It was a classic. It, it was really funny. But um, yeah, poor old Mandeville George. He did get a second at Salisbury once, I recall, but uh, that was about as best as he could uh, he could do, really. But um, so what about the best trader that you, uh, you sort of, you know, observed from, shall we say? I think on the flat, it's got to be Sir Henry Cecil, uh, particularly latterly with his uh, performance, his training uh, of Frankel. Because yeah. the horse was very headstrong early on in his career for all his brilliance and you know you, you remember the, the way that he won the 2000 guineas basically running full pelt all the way and then he very nearly got beaten at Royal Ascot in the St James's Palace Stakes through being too headstrong but uh, Sir Henry Cecil maybe uh, taught him to switch off and I just think he had an innate relationship with horses and I remember the Piggott and Cecil combination again going back some years that they were it could be unbeatable at times and um, Sir Henry was particularly brilliant at Royal Ascot I thought he was uh, he's probably the outstanding trainer in my memory on the flat jumps um, over, over jumps I was always when I was younger I, I was very keen on following horses trained by Fred Winter and Fort Warwin and uh, I, I just loved in particular the, the, the horses that Warwin trained because they were big strong rangy type chasing type Diamond Edge was one one horse that was one of my favourites in the early days and uh, uh, I loved seeing him run over fences he was a great weight carrier in races like the Hennessy and the the Whitbread Gold Cup, not quite Gold Cup class, but uh, I thought Fort Warwin was a, a brilliant trainer and Fred Winter, and uh, particularly when Johnny Franken was riding for him as well. But there have been, um, I think, tremendous improvements in, in the training of racehorses over the years, and, and now we're seeing trainers, you know, someone like Paul Nichols or many trainers now who can just get a horse fit after a year off whereas yeah. when I started out you'd always expect a horse to need a run to yeah. come out particularly if it hadn't run for a while so training techniques have, have progressed they've improved and I think the quality of under both codes is very high uh, we probably uh, don't always have a champion every year and maybe the, the Nichols era I mentioned earlier with the Corto Stars and Demon and they don't come around very often yeah. and there is also I must also say that there are some fantastic trainers in Ireland of course Aidan O'Brien on the flat and over jumps trainers like Jesse Harrington Willie Mullins yeah. and of course Cheltenham last March Henry de Bromhead doing fantastically well yeah absolutely he was so uh, we're running out of time uh, Simon so we've got two more questions for you um, as far as you're concerned what's your, your favourite track I am asked this quite a lot and it's a difficult one but I grew up in the south east Shoreham by Sea was my hometown and Brighton was the first course I ever attended and I think Fontwell might have been the second so they're very high on my list as is Goodwood down there and I'd have to add Chelsea yeah. it's always been uh, the place of dreams I think and it's just an amazing spectacle and probably my greatest commentary memories have, have occurred at, um, at the festival Okay, well, last one then. Um, looking back over all your, I don't know, 20, 30 years, um, what's the best race you've ever been involved in, you know, from a commentary point of view? Oh, gosh, now that is a tough one. Um, I can't really... I think one day that I really remember, and it might surprise you because it's a flat race, and, and that was when Frankel went to, to York to run in the Judmont International, and it was his first try at a mile and a quarter, and uh, he was unbeaten up to that point. I think he was 
12 from 12 at that uh, stage of his career into his four-year-old season. And the atmosphere was something different, something else. I haven't experienced it very often. You get that hum in a big crowd where the expectation is so high. It was the same when Best Mate went for his third Gold Cup when Black Caviar, the great Australian sprinter, ran at Royal Ascot, there was this tremendous anticipation in the crowd, a massive crowd, and it was sort of that general hum. And it was a, it was the same at York that day, and everyone was so excited to see him trying the, the uh, new distance. And the way he won that race was just fantastic, beating St Nicholas Abbey and uh, Far, two very good horses, and he made them look like selling places and. I think that was one of the most extraordinary performances I've ever seen. Well, just I just thought of one more question. I'm going to ask you anyway before you go. Um, you know, bear in mind, uh, you've been doing it for 30 years now. So or is it 30 years, roughly? Uh, yeah, 1988. 30, yeah. What's that? 30-something, <laughs> yeah. A long time, anyway. Um, yeah. And, and, and hearing your, your obvious... Um, amazing um, memory base, or you know, of, of, of horses that have won this and won that, and the distances. And how do you do it? Do you have to top up your sort of memory base very often, or is it just something that comes naturally? How? Because you know, you just seem to better roll them out. You know, Franco was York mile and a quarter. You know, it, I just and I, I'm amazed. When I see them on you know Jason Weaver and uh, Francesca Kimani and people like that. They they roll them out as though it's just there. So so easy it can't be that easy surely can it well i don't i think you're flattering me there because my memory is is, is quite appalling i i think i can do a meeting did a meeting earlier this week at brighton well if you ask me what had won that day now i probably couldn't tell you but as commentators because we have so many names and colors to learn you do develop a a, a sort of dustbin a bin facility like you have on your computer or your mobile phone, you have a bin facility because you can't possibly remember them all. And I, I, I just mentioned the, these horses just now because obviously they're very famous and and they are very they are outstanding memories in my career. But I don't really have a, a great memory. I suppose it's a, a the price for trying to learn so many horses over the years, and you develop a very short term memory and uh, learn them well, obviously as best you can and then make room for something else you yeah. have to remember afterwards. I've got to do the Cambridgeshire, for example, in um, just over a week's time, and that is a race where there will probably be, I'm not sure, I think 32 runners might be the maximum, or 33. And obviously that's quite a, a daunting task, but, uh, you know, it's really the case of cramming, like cramming for an exam, yeah. cramming for O-levels, which are basically are based on facts, and you cram those facts and the various things in, in your history exam and it's the same thing you cram cram learn the colors learn learn the names of the horses and then you've got to move on it's um it's just a it's just a, a way of working that you you learn i think over the years well look, i've got i've got a, a challenge for you now really if you're well, not challenged when you decide to hang up your uh, microphone and your headphones can you reserve every Saturday to come and sit next to me so that we can do the do the Saturday racing together and, and maybe I can have a few winners on a Saturday? <laughs> well, I can't promise you any winners, that's for sure. <laughs> we, we haven't talked about my tipping and a good job too. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think like everybody with regard to tipping and punting, I think we all have our good times and bad times, don't we? Mm, yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah and, but as a, going back to the beginning of this conversation, it's part of the great fascination of horse racing and it's it's complex nature that um, you're always trying to find the solution trying to find the answer and sometimes you do and sometimes you don't yeah yeah i mean colin brown had 10 winners one day on the racing show for us but other days he's had none so it just goes to prove how bad yeah. he can be at times you know well, look, it's been it's been brilliant, Simon. Thank you very, very much for coming on. I, I find it fascinating some of the stuff you've got up in your brain up there. It's uh, it's incredible, really, and uh, I, I'm very envious of some of the experiences that you must have had. But um, maybe we've got a few more coming our way yet, anyway. So uh, so I, I appreciate you coming on and keep up the good work. And thanks for joining us. Thank you, Eddie. Brilliant. This is Three Valleys Radio. The heart is a bloom. And you've been listening to the In Conversation program with A.D. Hopper. 
Make sure you join us every week here on Three Valleys Radio. And the reason that you had to care, the traffic is stuck. And you're not moving anywhere. You thought you found a friend to take you out of this place. Someone you could lend a hand in return for grace. So beautiful.